here's the deal. It's $59.95 a month. No contracts, no teaser rates, no special deals, uh, but we're not pulling any funnies on anybody, and you can leave at any point. This is episode 245 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. NetBlazer is a Boston wireless internet service provider that focuses on urban delivery of high-quality internet access. This week, Bruff Turner, founder and chief technology officer, connects with Christopher to talk about the ins and outs of providing the point-to-point wireless service in an urban area. Bruff gets into the technology and the guys discuss what might be in the future of wireless. Bruff also shares his company's experience as a startup, some of the challenges they've faced, and how NetBlazer is keeping up with demand. Check out their website, netblazr.com, to learn more about the company, the technology, and the team. Here's Christopher talking with Chief Technology Officer and Founder of NetBlazer, Bruff Turner. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Bruff Turner, the Founder and Chief Technology Officer for NetBlazer. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We'll get into this in a second, but NetBlazer is a, a wireless firm, and we're going to talk a lot about wireless technologies. Uh, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what you know uh, about wireless networks, or I guess a different way of saying that would be, you know, tell the audience why they should listen to you. Oh, well, let's see. I'm an electrical engineer in distant origin, and I've started a few other companies. I spent a lot of years working in computer telephony and early voice over IP. But in 2008, I, well, I was perceived as a wireless expert and I had tons of theoretical knowledge, but at that point I would say I had zero practical, you know, hands-on experience. Uh, But I was uh, out of a job, my previous company, we'd sold it off in pieces and I was pondering what to do next. I have been generally pissed about U.S. broadband policy for 20 years now. And uh, I decided I would do something about it in the way I understand, which is as an engineer and an entrepreneur. So I came up with the idea for NetBlazer. I conned my partner, Jim Hanley, into joining me in doing this. And uh, we started up in 2010. And quite frankly, uh, it's okay to have tons of theoretical knowledge, but the the hands-on also is worth something. And the business model took us probably till late in 2012 to crack the code on what we were really doing. But since then, it's been very rapid growth. So I have a lot of experience, but uh, it's as an urban wireless internet service provider. NetBlazer is in downtown Boston, Cambridge, Somerville. Uh, We don't go out to the suburbs. I don't have any experience with rural stuff except talking to other members of WISPA. Tons of theoretical knowledge, six years, seven years of practical hands-on experience in an urban environment. And and let's just be clear, you're a wisp, and yet you're somewhat of a rare wisp in that I think those of us that have dealt with a lot of wisps are used to a kind of condescending attitude from some. I mean, I've certainly met wonderful people that are running wisps, but I've met many people who also tell me, uh, three megabits is just fine. And when it's a good quality three megabits, you won't ever need anything else. Now, you've taken um, a, a different philosophy, which is that you want to deliver um, high throughput. Uh, how's that working out? Very well. We have uh, a lot of customers on a 300 meg down, 300 meg up service. We're migrating uh, new buildings to 500 down, 500 up. 
I'd like to do one gig down, one gig up, but to do it to the standards that we're used to still has some price increment, which I can describe it at some point. Um, so right now we're focused on 300, 300 or 500, 500. And uh, we sell that for 59.95 a month. No contracts, no whatever. We earn your, your business month by month. And that's very profitable. And it's relatively easy to do for uh, multi-tenant buildings. Um, I think the smallest building has 30 units in it. And we have a lot of, of buildings that have more than 100 either condos or apartments. Uh, so that's, that's our bread and butter high-speed stuff. For isolated buildings that we can't really justify the investment um, that we would put into a building with 50 or 100 doors, we have uh, another piece of technology which is somewhat related to, to rural WISPs, but we managed to get either 15 megabits down, 15 megs up, or 50 megabits down, 50 megabits up, uh, as the two service levels for isolated buildings. Three megs sounds crazy to me. I wish I could offer a gigabit symmetric. It's a much, much cheaper for us to offer 500 megs down, 500 megs up with the technology we can get off the shelf today. That'll change. Are you wireless all the way to the user or how does it, how does it work if I'm, a, if I'm a person in one of these buildings getting your service? How does the signal travel? Uh, we are wireless, uh, typically high-speed point-to-point links. We have a rooftop-to-rooftop. Uh, we have, at the moment, seven different fiber feed points in the, in the downtown Boston, Cambridge, Somerville area. From these feed points, we go out to hundreds of buildings where we have, uh, typically on the roof of one of these buildings, we'll have three to six radios. It's power over Ethernet uh, in the mechanical space or the upper top floor telco closet or wherever we can uh, locate a rack. We put a UPS, a router, a power over Ethernet switch, and we use this dense mesh of point-to-point links to distribute capacity to, uh, to hundreds of buildings. The point here is that we always have at least two paths to any, any important building. Uh, and we have routers at every every node, so we can rearrange our network uh, automatically. Should uh, should a building lose power, uh, typically the relay function will keep going, and the only customers who are out are the ones who are in that building. So you end up with a really high capacity, uh, high quality signal on the roof. How does that get to people then within the units that goes over the the structured wiring in the building already? Yes. Uh, basically, we run uh, we run cables vertically. Most multi-tenant buildings have, not all of them, but most of them built in the last uh, four or five decades, have uh, stacked telco closets. Uh, and our only hard part is figuring a path to get from the roof uh, to the top telco closet. And that requires some ingenious things, and every building is different. Uh, we don't want to penetrate the roof because we don't want to be on the hook. So we're looking for ways to go in through uh, the wall of the headhouse or the stairwell or some existing uh, penetration. But once we, we find a path, and that, that is the one piece of ingenuity, is how do you get from the roof to the top of the tel- stacked telco closets? Uh, we run our own cables vertically, typically Cat 6 cable. We locate 
well, the router's at the top, and we put switches where we need to in order to uh, cover the number of people we expect to penetrate in the building. Some buildings will do a bulk deal, in which case we're lighting every apartment. Uh, that's not the most common, but we have a number of those. Uh, other buildings, uh, we figure, partly depends on the demographic, uh, but we're figuring on a 30% penetration within a year or so. Um, our best building has uh, 52% penetration, and that's us competing against Comcast and Verizon. And our worst building is is whatever's our newest building because you, you get a burst initially and you get a few more rounds in 60 or 90 days. You know, then then uh, you wait out the year as people's contracts expire and they're ready to roll over and try something new. Some of our listeners might be listening to this and thinking, well, this is very similar to what WebPass is doing. But I, I think you have a twist on it that they're not doing. And uh, for people who may not have been paying attention, WebPass was the firm that had a business model that's somewhat similar that Google bought and is now, we expect, going to be ramping up. Uh, yeah, so certainly some similarities to WebPass. Uh, in fact, WebPass announced they were coming to Boston and we were initially worried and then uh, uh, well, since they've been acquired by Google, my impression is that they are signing buildings, but not actually bringing buildings online. They are in Boston, and uh, I don't know the extent to which they have the technical model we have. Uh, they're mostly using Siklu radios. We're using some Siklu, but uh, but mostly Ubiquiti air fibers. Uh, they're certainly going after... Uh, buildings with more than 50 doors, and uh, they do their wiring inside the building in much the same way we do. And beyond uh, the two of us, there are three or four other companies I'm aware of who do similar things in different cities. Uh, so it's not the thousands and thousands of WISPs you see in rural areas, but there probably are uh, four, five, or six companies like NetBlazer doing things in urban areas. I would say it's it's early days, but it's an incredible growth opportunity for us and for anyone else that wants to get into it. Bruff, how do you engineer the network to make sure that you're always delivering the speeds that you're promising, even if there's bad weather or something like that? We don't have anything that slows down during inclement weather. There are three exceptions but all of our links are engineered for at least uh, five nines in terms of the weather. There are three links that are air fiber links that uh, are approaching three kilometers, and those have a number of minutes of outage per year. Uh, but during that time, I've got uh, five gigahertz backup. There are certainly portions at the edge of the network where the backup path is a five gigahertz link without uh, adequate capacity to guarantee uh, full speeds. You know, for example, uh, we're we're in Medford now. Medford is uh, you know is a suburb, so we're hopping from uh, Cambridge and Somerville to the edge of Somerville to the edge of Medford. Uh, the primary links are all air fiber, so so I've got you know more than a gig of of capacity coming out in that direction. But uh, the backup is probably limited to 100 megabits by the time it gets out there. So there's certainly the case that should we experience some sort of an outage or a failure somewhere, people will still have service, but it may not uh, speed test the whole way during the period of, of us scrambling to repair things. Literally out of hundreds and hundreds of wireless links, there are three of them that I worry about the weather. 
Well, and you certainly had plenty of ex- opportunities to test that in, in recent <laughs> months, let alone yeah. years. Um, so one of the questions I, I wonder about is, is there a constraint to expanding this service to uh, all of the larger residential buildings in Boston and, and actually the metro area? I mean, is there a constraint in spectrum or in terms of uh, you know other issues like line of sight that would make it difficult? Or, or is this something that you literally could with the right time and if the cards fall right, you could take this to every last large building in? In the area? Uh, technically, we could take it to every last large building in the area. There's not a spectrum limitation. At 5 gigahertz, there's, there's obviously spectrum issues. We basically have a lot of 24 gigahertz operation, and uh, we have a few links at 60 gigahertz, and uh, we're putting in our first 70 and 80 gigahertz link. We'll be a couple more of those. Uh, anything in the 24, 60, or 70, or 80 gigahertz range is a highly directional beam. So it's basically, you know, no interference. You just reuse the spectrum over and over again. Uh, and from one given roof, you can uh, you can send out beams that are less than 10, 10 degrees apart on one frequency, and you've got 24, 60, 70, and 80. I mean, there, there's not a spectrum issue for doing high-frequency high-capacity point-to-point links. Um, in terms of uh, line of sight, dense urban areas have a lot of buildings, and you can't always get to a particular building uh, right away. But if you were talking about filling things in, we can get to an awful lot of things, and it's only occasionally we have a, a real problem of how do we get – there's a little low building in Chinatown, a four-story building in Chinatown surrounded by 20-story buildings – the problem is how do you get a mount at the edge of one of the 20-story buildings that's close enough to the edge so you can look over and get a line of sight down to the four-story building in Chinatown? Right. So, no, I would say there is certainly a capital issue. We look at our capital investment on trying to uh, to break even within 12 months, and sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse, but... Let's see, we, we started uh, doing all our capital investments entirely from cash flow, which meant we were growing fairly slowly. Uh, we raised a million dollars in convertible loans, uh, and we used that to grow a lot more rapidly. We've reached the point where we're uh, EBITDA positive. Uh, we are approaching the point where we may actually be gushing enough cash to, to fund the current growth rate. Uh, but that's still a few months in the future. So it's a, there's a capital issue. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, quite frankly, we're not growing faster than a mere, say, 8% per month <laughs> <laughs> because we're still scrambling to put in place the automation and the training and the policies and procedures that, that can keep us ahead of where we are. We are we're constantly scrambling. You know, we're growing and... and if we were a more professional organization or where I hope we'll be one year from now, then uh, uh, there's no reason we can't grow even faster and there's no reason we can't go to other cities. Now, you're not seeing any anti-competitive kinds of behavior. I mean, uh, it seems like when you look at ISPs that are trying to really get big quickly and they're putting their name on the map, you know, you might have Comcast coming in and really trying to underprice them and that sort of thing. But a comment you made earlier made it seem like, you know, for your growth, you're not having to work that hard for it. You're, you're mostly, mostly focused on internal kind of issues and getting them set up right. 
Yeah, you know, we're still a drop in the bucket for Comcast in the city of Boston. One of the things that I remember is when the cable companies came after the phone company uh, 15, 20 years ago with their triple play and they started offering voice telephone service. Verizon did not react to Comcast taking over uh, voice telephone business, which was their bread and butter, until Comcast had taken 20% of the market. Uh, I don't know if Comcast will react more completely, but we're nowhere near taking 5% of the market, let alone 10% or 20%. Uh, So I don't expect Comcast to be noticing us except for individual people in specific buildings, maybe. There is a building where we now have passed 50%, and it's a building that Comcast has served poorly. Maybe somebody will notice that, but no, I don't see that. I do see um, building management is all over the ballpark. Some people love what we're doing and want to offer their tenants uh, new things. If you run into a condo, what we do, we just wait until we have a couple of people inside the building who'd like our service and we get them to introduce us to the condo board. If, if somebody's on the condo board, it's a no-brainer. On the other hand, I can think of one large condo in downtown Boston. It's a multi-hundred unit building facing the common. They literally get a 6% kickback from Comcast. This is the condo management operation gets a 6% kickback. And this allows the condo board to cut a different deal with the condo man- the, the, uh, the management firm. And right. the, you know, it was m- many hundred people in the building, and we didn't have an advocate on the condo board. And the condo board basically said, well, unless you give us the 6% kickback that, Com- that Comcast gives us, we won't let you come into the building. And uh, we said, well, we don't deal with kickbacks, and we don't do anything. It's simple. Here's the deal. And so we are, in it, we are not in that building. Yeah, but, I mean, to give a sense, I would guess that, you know, a building of 50 people, a 6% kickback on revenue, you would expect that would be in the order of $5,000 uh, per year, maybe, you know, give or take, but that's the order. Here's the deal. It's fifty nine ninety five a month, no contracts, no teaser rates, no special deals, but it also doesn't go up. And over time, we look to provide more and more, more and more services for that amount of money. Uh, but we're not pulling any funnies on anybody, and you can leave at any point. But by the same token, we don't want to get into uh, weird funnies and kickback schemes and agents and so on and so forth. Well, I salute you for that, and I think probably most of our listeners do. And frankly, just about everyone who's had to deal with the cable companies uh, salutes that. Uh, I'd like to round up the discussion a little bit of where we're going with wireless technologies and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think it might be useful to talk a little bit about the cost of these wireless radios because uh, some people look at these kinds of services that are being provided to uh, the multi-tenant uh, buildings and they think, well, we could just, you know, we just need to do that on single family homes as well. And I'm guessing that the it actually doesn't work out that way. You can't really scale it because whenever I talk to Wisps that have a single family home approach, it's generally on the order of 25 or 50 megabits at the upper end, it seems like nowadays. So I'm just curious if you can give us a sense of how this works and, and what we might expect for rounding out single family home coverage from Wisps in the future. Okay. Well, we do provide single family home coverage, but you're right. It's uh, the choice is either 15-15 or 50-50. One of the things I'm curious about is whether or not that technology will improve rapidly enough that you would ever be 
kind of competitive with cable for those who care about uh, the higher quality speeds, you know, which is to say that will the wireless speeds improve more rapidly than the cable speeds have been? Uh, maybe. Um, there's, there are a number of interesting things in so-called 5G. Forget about the 5G that's part of uh, of the mobile operators and think of thinking of the underlying radio technology, there are things you know with with massive MIMO, uh, the potential to uh, to deal with non line of sight reflections and things like that uh, mean that potentially you could be using uh, 24 or 60, you know, one of the higher frequency things to get to single family homes in some shared fashion. That's not in the next three to five years despite what uh, what people may claim or what they <laughs> but it is in the next 10 years. So for sure there will be some pretty dramatic stuff uh, at some point. Meanwhile, you know we've got ubiquity and mimosa networks and uh, the Motorola spin out Cambion you know competing to to bring new radios to up the speeds that you can deliver to individual users. So uh, independent of any major technology shift, uh, there's ongoing improvements. Uh, things get better every every couple of years. Um, will it get faster than cable? I think over 10 years, absolutely. Cable has a lot of investment it needs to do to get uh, from coax with amplifiers to coax with no amplifiers to fiber to the home. Uh, when it gets to fiber to the home, it'll be ahead of uh, ahead of us. But the next investment they have to get to right now is. Uh, fiber to the node and then cable with no amplifiers before they can do much of anything. So they have a major capital investment also. Okay. And then I think you were going to continue a thought and I kind of pressed in on some of this, uh, the the economics of the, the home. Do you remember what that was? Oh, well, I was going to talk about the economics of the, of the multifamily buildings, which in urban areas are a major percentage of what's happening. <laughs> Uh, there we are talking about uh, the list price for a ubiquity uh, air fiber 24 link is basically 3000 bucks um, I buy a lot of them so I'm paying I don't know less than 2800 but I'm still paying thousands of dollars per link the list price for uh, for the 60 gigahertz radios which we've trialed in a few places and still had some problems with, but which I'm very, very, very interested in. That's uh, the IgniteNet uh, Metrolink radios. When I'm confident that they're really rock solid, uh, that's basically one gigabit TDD, which is, from my perspective, 750 down and 250 up, um, is quite a respectable thing. And that's about $1,000 per link, although the range is... is uh, shorter than the air fiber 24 but again we have an awful lot of links that are pretty short a few city blocks and then at the uh, 70 and 80 gigahertz range they're basically Siklu and Bridgewave are providing 2 gigabit 4 gigabit uh, up to 10 gigabit links that are good for 2 kilometers easily 2500 meters perhaps again i only have 3 links that are more than 2 kilometers in the entire thing and i have hundreds of links you're paying thousands of dollars, but those prices are coming down for the 60 gigahertz radio. Uh, once we have that stuff deployed for less than 1,500 meters, it's $1,000 for, for a high-capacity link. Those in the audience who run ISPs are aware of how things work. 
but an awful lot of people aren't. And some people who, and even rural WISP don't think about it the way we do. Say you've got a uh, hundred customers and you're feeding them with uh, 700 megs or, or a gigabit or two gigabit capacity. The question is what, what do you need to do to guarantee that they all see 300 megs up and 300 megs down anytime they run a speed test? Right. The answer is, if it's 300, you need 300 megs of headroom above the peak of the actual usage. Um, if it's 500 meg service, you need 500 megabytes of headroom, megabits of headroom above the peak of the actual usage. For residential uh, residential users in Boston, uh, that peak is kind of distributed at uh, different times between 9 p.m. and midnight. So I look at minute-by-minute uh, minute averages of the actual traffic between 9 p.m. and midnight. And as long as I've got uh, 300 or 500 megs of headroom above that actual traffic, then anybody who runs a speed test or anybody who hits a web page and does a download or something uh, will get the full 300 or 500 that they're paying for. So, so what's the average for 100 users in Boston on a 300-300 uh, service? And the answer is 1.2 megabits per second per user. <laughs> now, the reason for that is that, you know, some of the people went out to dinner and some of them are watching uh, Netflix, not in HD. And the few are watching Netflix in HD, which is only like four megabits anyway. The, the reason for the high speeds is not because you're going to use that capacity all the time. The reason for the high speeds, the reason there's a real benefit and would be to a gigabit service is for reducing latency. When you click on something, pop, it's right there uh, because you go really fast for a very short amount of time and then you don't do anything for a long time. And if you have 100 or more people, that averages out to 1.2 megabits uh, per user during the evening peak. In my mind, this whole discussion about what a person uses over the course of a month or this or that – it doesn't tell you whether or not they're achieving what they want to have done. If I'm a small business or even my myself, um, you know, whether I'm acting in a small business capacity or not, and I'm trying to email or, or not so much email, but upload a large file to someone, I don't want to sit there for a half hour and watch it happen. I just want it to be done. Even if I only do that a few times a month, it, it you know, that's important to me. And so I don't, you know, I don't think you want to size your link based on how often I do something necessarily. Yeah, the goal is to provide as much uh, available speed as you possibly can because that reduces latency. Uh, what people actually use averaged over, uh, over periods of time uh, is a lot less, and that's fine. That allows me to aggregate a lot of people and provide them with blazingly fast service using radios I can actually buy. And I think one of your one of the points you've made a number of times elsewhere also is that you can do this affordably. It's not bankrupting you to offer high capacity connections. No, 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 no. Now I do have an advantage. We're in an urban area, uh, which means there's a lot of people, a lot of prospective customers, um, and basically we won't do a building unless we can put a minimum of three radios on the roof. You know, if the if the building says, oh, we won't allow you to use our roof to relate anywhere else, uh, we won't do it because our whole model is a dense mesh of point to point links. Uh, that's generally not a problem for 98 percent of people, but it comes up every now and again. I want to ask you a, a hypothetical question, because I know that that Boston has 
fiber that could be available, but they are working internally on the policies and that sort of thing, I think. So my, my curious, my question is more for a generic city, particularly in, in a larger urban city. Would having fiber available that you could lease or, or conduit um, make it easier for you to expand your business and services? And if so, what do you need? Not just the hypothetical knowledge that fiber is there, but what do you need the city to do to make it valuable and useful to you? I'd rather deal with private companies because it's faster and easier. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And I, and I, and I, you, you know me, you know my position on a lot of these things, but let me just share with you an experience that, um, that uh, Travis Carter with US Internet um, relayed previously with us and led us to go do an interview with St. Louis Park. You know, they gave him basically, I think it was like a sheet or three sheets of paper and said, here are our terms. Let us know what routes you want to use and then it's yours. Um, it strikes me that if cities can make that work, then maybe that would turn your opinion a little bit. Boston, uh, you know, Verizon and Com uh, Verizon has fiber to all sorts of places. Comcast has fiber to all sorts of places. But if you look at level three, uh, light tower, there are about uh, uh, five or six companies that have fiber to various buildings in the city, but they only have fiber to maybe 150 or 300 buildings. But that's enough. Uh, I don't need fiber everywhere. I need fiber to a few places around the city uh, as seed points. Ten years ago, the only possible model that would have made sense would have been to backhaul everything to a data center where I could buy internet transit from two or three different upstreams. Uh, but in fact, uh, data centers are rather expensive from my perspective. And I can actually today buy burstable internet transit at specific buildings, not in a data center. So, you know, I literally have four U of rack space that I rent uh, as a sublet from somebody in one data center. But basically, basically, we don't have any data centers. We have seven fiber feed points where we're buying uh, internet transit from one of three existing vendors. So if the city was doing something, uh, I'd be, if it were very appealing, I'd certainly think about it, but it would be fiber that would, in the end, it would have to go back to some internet data center and there I'd have to rent some space, pay for some power, pay cross-connect fees, terminate the fiber, um, be an interesting monthly recurring even if the city was giving me the fiber for free. You know, every deal is, is different in, in any of, say, the top 30 or top 50 markets. There are multiple providers who own fiber to some buildings. And if you can cut a deal with one of those guys, it's probably easier than renting a layer two fiber or owning a layer two, a layer two connection uh, to a data center and, and doing it all yourself. I don't know if the economics would be great or not. Totally depend on the price. Well, that's. I think it's helpful to get that real-world perspective. So I, I think I, I want to limit myself to, to one last question. <laughs> We've already gone um, longer than, than most of our shows, so, uh, but I'm really enjoying all the information that I haven't necessarily seen anywhere else. Um, what, what, and what do you think about in terms of city policies that would try to deal with the contracts that Comcast already has and others in, in the sense of like San Francisco has passed a, a bill or it's passed a statute that gives tenants basically a right to choose different ISPs and landlords would not be able to um, charge unreasonable fees for you to get into their buildings. And that is, of course, not 
perfect because you have to deal with that term unreasonable. But uh, is that something that, that you would see benefiting urban areas from your perspective? Possibly. You know, as I say, there's enough buildings that are interested in our service that we can walk away from anybody who wants to charge us any fee, reasonable or unreasonable. So, And that's the way the market is supposed to work, of course. Yeah, so there's enough. Uh, there are enough buildings that we have not been tempted to pay kickbacks or to pay access fees. Uh, we have a capital investment. We have to pull things and so forth. Uh, we will give the building uh, manager or the building apart, you know, whatever uh, one free service. But in exchange, we expect to be able to uh, to consume uh, 150 watts of power. We're we're expecting uh, the building owner to. To, to basically for the for the privilege of having us as a amenity for their tenants or their co-op members, they need to let us get in and invest our capital, and they need to uh, to pay for the electricity uh, that we're going to use, which in many cases is 150 or 180 watts. And in exchange, we give them uh, a free high-speed internet connection in their office. Well, I want to thank you for taking all this time to talk with us and, and to share your experiences, to be so open, frankly, with your costs and whatnot. Uh, I think people are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you. Okay. Anytime. Happy to help. That was Bruff Turner, the Chief Technology Officer and founder of NetBlazer, talking with Christopher about the company and what it's like to offer high-speed wireless services in an urban environment. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to thank you for listening and, and helping out uh, to create a, a stronger internet ecosystem, making sure everyone has high-quality access. Uh, please tell your friends, tell others who might be interested about this show. Uh, if you have a chance to rate us on iTunes, uh, please do. Several people already have. Uh, we really appreciate all of the comments, and we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. You can subscribe to this podcast and all of the podcasts in the ILSR family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. We want to thank Break the Bands for the song Escape License through Creative Commons. And we want to thank you for listening to episode 245 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.